We return this morning to Revelation chapter 9 and to the seven trumpets of God's judgment. And since it has been a few weeks, if you'll allow me a moment to catch us up so that we can get a running start at our text for today. The seven trumpets are cast against the backdrop of two major Old Testament events, the plagues of Egypt leading to the deliverance of Israel from the land of slavery, that's the first one, and the fall of Jericho, leading to Israel's entrance into the land of promise, that's the second. These two events form the template for what God is doing in these last days, now. God has heard the groaning of His people. He has remembered His covenant with us. He has seen our affliction, He knows our sufferings, and He is coming to deliver us. Just as God brought His people out of Egypt by sending great plagues of judgment upon Pharaoh's kingdom, even so God is sending great plagues of judgment upon the kingdom of this world in preparation for bringing us, the true Israel of God, out of the land of bondage and out of the oppression and slavery of this present fallen world. And just as God destroyed Jericho at the sounding of the seven trumpets, that great and fortified city which blocked the people's entrance into the land of promise, even so the seven trumpets in these last days will culminate with the destruction of Babylon, which is the emblematic world city after which the people of God will enter into that everlasting promised land, which is the new heaven and the new earth. Thus far, we have studied the first five of the trumpet judgments. In the first four, we saw that God is shaking the heavens and the earth. He is bringing judgment and wrath upon the earth by afflicting the four realms of nature. The land, that's trumpet one, the seas, Trumpet two, the rivers and springs, that's trumpet three, and the heavens, trumpet four. These trumpet judgments mirrored the seventh, the first, and the ninth Egyptian plagues, respectively. Then in Revelation 9, in the fifth trumpet, God granted to Satan and to his demonic forces, which are pictured there as a swarm of locusts, authority to oppress and to torment the unbelieving world. This trumpet judgment mirrors the eighth Egyptian plague when a swarm of locusts devoured the land. And my contention is that these first five trumpets represent God's present judgment, His present wrath, which are being revealed, being poured out even now upon the earth at this present time, this age which the Bible calls the last days, the time of great tribulation between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. You see, the wrath of God is not merely a future reality. Paul wrote in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a present tense verb at the beginning of that verse. 
Literally, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And you begin to see this downward movement that we noticed in Revelation 8 where the fire was taken from the altar and placed into the golden censer and the angel hurled it down to the earth. And what happened as a result? Wrath begins to be revealed as God shakes the heavens and the earth. The wrath of God is being revealed. It was in Paul's day, and it is now. It is being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who, although they know God, they do not honor Him as God and they do not give Him thanks, but they trade the glory of the immortal God for images and they worship and serve themselves rather than Him. So God's wrath is not only a future reality, it is a present reality being revealed from heaven because of the idolatries and immoralities of men, which are the very two sins mentioned at the end of Roman, or Revelation chapter 9 as the reason for the trumpet judgments. So that's what these first five trumpets are. They are foretastes of wrath. Leading up to the full revelation of the wrath of God, which will be unleashed at the second coming of Christ. With the sixth trumpet blast, however, we see a marked escalation telling us that we must be nearing the end. So read with me, beginning in verse 13. Then the sixth angel angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. That's important. For the power of the horses is in their mouths. And in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. I want to make two observations regarding this sixth trumpet. I want to talk about its timing, and I want to talk about its meaning. I think that with this sixth trumpet, we've moved from those plagues which characterize the entirety of this age between the first and second comings of Christ characterize the entirety of this age of tribulation, and we've moved now into what is known as the end of the age, the climax of the last days. And I'm going to give you four reasons why I think this. Number one, I see in the sixth trumpet an escalation or an intensification of judgment. You remember that in the fifth trumpet, the demons were allowed to torment those who do not have the seal of God, but not to kill them. But the result of the sixth trumpet is that a third of mankind are dead. 
Now, we'll discuss in a moment what I think that means, but now, for now, I just want you to notice that judgment appears to be ratcheting up. Things are getting heated, which only makes sense, right? Jesus said in Matthew 13, 8, that the tribulations of this age are like birth pangs. Well, if we, if we take that metaphor and apply it to what God is doing in these last days, it seems that with the sixth trumpet, we've moved out of the realm of mere contractions and we are now in active labor. Christ is coming. He's imminent. And the sixth trumpet is the sign that the pain is getting much, much worse. Second reason I concluded this. The sixth trumpet issues in a plague which mirrors the final climactic tenth Egyptian plague. Death and death. You remember the final plague of Egypt, the tenth plague, the one that finally broke the wills of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and brought the exodus of Israel about was the death of the firstborn. You can read about it in Exodus 12, 29 to 32. The death inflicted by this plague was so pervasive that according to Exodus 12, 30, there was not a house where someone was not dead. Well, likewise, in the sixth trumpet plague, a third of mankind are slain. So the final Egyptian plague, death, leads to the exodus of Israel. And as we will see, the final trumpet plague, death, leads to the exodus of the church. The seventh final trumpet blows and judgment comes. Third, you're going to have to follow along with me. Things get a little technical here. The seven trumpets of Revelation 8 and 9 are parallel to the seven seals of Revelation 6. Now, this isn't the first time that you've heard this. The the book of Revelation is a series of cyclical visions that describe the same event from different angles and different perspectives. Like, you remember my illustration of a diamond? One diamond, and we just turn it ever so slightly with every chapter to look at a different facet. So the seven trumpets and the seven seals are descriptive of the same time, the same thing, namely, God's judgments poured out upon the earth in this age, leading up like birth pangs to the final delivery of the judgment of God in the everlasting kingdom to come. So if it's true that the seven trumpets and the seven seals are parallel, then we can learn some things from that. In the seven seals, the first five seals, conquest, war, famine, death, and the persecution and martyrdom of the saints, were characteristic of the tribulation of this age. While the sixth seal marked the coming of the final day of wrath, right? The day of wrath has come and who can stand? And the seventh seal, after an interlude of Revelation 7, described the silence just before the final judgment. Well, likewise, in the seven trumpets, the first five trumpets issue in plagues, Natural calamities affecting land, sea, waters, and heavens, and the demonic oppression of the unbelieving world, 
while the seventh trumpet blast, which we'll get to at the end of Revelation 11, again, after an interlude of visions dealing with the church in Revelation 10 and 11, the seventh trumpet appears to declare the accomplishment of the day of wrath and the final judgment. You can read it, 11.15 to 19. So at the seven seals, the first five were descriptive of this age. The sixth was the coming of the final day of wrath, and the seventh was the aftermath of the day of wrath. And then I come over here to the seven trumpets, and the first five are descriptive of this age, and the last one is the aftermath of the day of wrath. It seems to me that the sixth would be the leading up and the, the final events bringing in, ushering in the final day of wrath. Does that make sense? Both the sixth seal and the sixth trumpet deal with the end of the age. All right, hang with me, and that's going to become clearer. Here's the fourth reason. Not only are the seven trumpets parallel to the seven seals, but they're also parallel to the seven bowls of wrath in Revelation 16. Which means that the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl of wrath describe the same event. The end of the age leading up to the final day of wrath. I want you to look with me at the description of the sixth bowl of wrath and see if you can mark the parallels to the sixth trumpet. Look with me at Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Okay, there's connection number one. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and coming out of the mouth of the beast, and coming out of the mouth of the false prophet, there's connection number two, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, demons. There's connection number three who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Lord God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the mention of the great river Euphrates and the emphasis upon the mouth coming out of the mouth, okay, the fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of the mouth of the horses, the unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon in Revelation 16. Tie those two passages together. The mouth is the instrument of deception, and as we will see, I think that's the meaning of both passages. All right, so my conclusion is, and I hope you've been able to follow me, those bullet points on the back of your bulletin will help. My conclusion is that the sixth trumpet is a final climactic plague which culminates in the great day of wrath and final judgment, which is the seventh trumpet. In other words, unlike the other trumpet plagues which are present realities, the sixth trumpet is something that is coming upon the earth in the future. Now, what is it? So the second observation regards the meaning of the sixth trumpet what is this demonic cavalry and what are they doing 
Well, when the sixth angel blows his trumpet, John hears a voice which says to the sixth angel, the voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before the throne of God. And a voice, it's either the voice of God or the voice of the Lamb or a voice speaking with God's authority. And it says to the sixth angel, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. The fact that these four angels are bound implies that they are being held against their will, which means that their will is in opposition to the will of God, which means that they are not holy angels, they are fallen angels. In other words, they are demons. And they are imprisoned like the fallen angels that were held or bound in the abyss in Revelation 9.1. Now, why the Euphrates River? Well, the region of the Euphrates, okay, in the prophets, it's sometimes just known as the north. The region of the Euphrates is mentioned many times by the Old Testament prophets as the region from which the armies of destruction will come. You can read about this. It happens in Jeremiah 1. It happens in Jeremiah 6. It happens in Jeremiah 10. It happens in Jeremiah 46. It happens in Ezekiel 38. It happens over and over again. The armies of destruction come from the north. They come from across the Euphrates. For instance, let's just look at one of those. Jeremiah 46. It'll be up here. You don't have to turn there. The prophet tells of a coming judgment upon Egypt, which includes an army of horsemen from the north, which are like serpents, sound familiar? An innumerable swarm of locusts, which also sounds familiar. Jeremiah 46.10 says this, That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country. By the river Euphrates. That event described in Jeremiah 46 is a type, a foreshadowing of the climactic destruction that we find in the sixth trumpet and in the sixth bowl of wrath. From the perspective of Israel's history, the Assyrian invaders came from the north across the Euphrates. The Babylonian invaders came from the north across the Euphrates. The Euphrates therefore became synonymous in Israelite literature, in the prophets, it became synonymous with invasion. Indeed, we read in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that the final coalition of God's enemies, known in the prophet Ezekiel as Gog and Magog, You can read about them in Ezekiel 38, 39. They appear again in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 8, which, hint, 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 is describing the exact same event. They come from across the Euphrates. They come from the north, and they invade the beautiful land of Israel from beyond the river. So it's natural in this vision that John sees these four horsemen that marshal a destructive army who are harbingers of God's judgment, and that they should come from across the river, from across the Euphrates, that is, from the north. Verse 15 says, These four angels have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, and they were released to kill a third of mankind. So in all of this, God's sovereignty reigns 
supreme. Everything transpires according to his eschatological calendar. In other words, this is not merely some rogue, demonic, rebel alliance. This is God's judgment upon the unbelieving world. These four demon generals marshal an innumerable force. John says their number was twice Myriads times myriads, or 10,000 times 10,000, literally coming to 200 million, but the literal number is not the point. As with the rest of the numbers in Revelation, this is a figurative accounting. John simply took the largest Greek number, multiplied it by itself, and then for good measure doubled it. The horsemen wear breastplates the color of fire, red, sapphire, blue, and sulfur, yellow. Which corresponds to the fire, sulfur, and smoke which are coming out of the horses' mouths, all of which are symbols of judgment. It's as if these demons and the horses on which they ride are wearing the colors of their homeland, namely hell. The horses have heads like lions, indicating their power, and tails like serpents with heads, indicating the venom of their bite. And the key to understanding the meaning of this sixth trumpet, of the demon riders and the demon horses on which they ride, lies in that repeated phrase, and I hope you caught it when we read through it, near the end of the passage. Listen for it again, verse 17 at the end. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths. John appears to to be trying to tell us something. What could that be? I think the image is intended to convey the truth that the power of the demons is in the deceptive lies which they utter and which men believe to their own destruction. Think about it. Our God is a God of order. He's a God of symmetry. He loves to tie up loose ends, doesn't he? How did this entire mess of sin and the curse and the fall begin? How did it start? You surely will not die, said the serpent. For God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the man and the woman believed the lies of the serpent and they ate and they died. This is simply Genesis 3 magnified on a global scale. This is how God is going to bring about the death of the unbelievers. At the end of all things, men will believe the doctrines of demons and God will slay them with the breath of his mouth. So to summarize, I believe that the vision of the sixth trumpet depicts the end of the age, just prior and leading to the second coming of Christ, when the demons will be unleashed on an unprecedented scale, an innumerable horde that gallops throughout the earth, uttering lies from the pit of hell into the ears of men, thus deceiving the nations into a massive rebellion against God, which in Revelation 16 is known as the Battle of Armageddon. And their end will be death, as they will be consumed in the fire of God's wrath, 
Revelation 20 and verse 9. That's the sixth trumpet. Now, on what basis can I make this interpretation of this passage? I mean, we are swimming in a veritable sea of apocalyptic imagery. How do we keep then from drowning either in fanciful allegory that has no basis in reality, where I can make anything stand for anything I want, or in a wooden literalism that John never intended that can go every which way of weird and has me seeing locusts as helicopters in Vietnam? How do I... How do I interpret this in the way that God intended for it to be interpreted? The answer is, is that we have to, in interpreting Revelation 9, we have to remain tethered to the text of Scripture. It's called the analogy of faith, and it means that the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. And so if I come across a a passage of Scripture, and I'm not exactly clear on what it means, I go to another passage of Scripture that seems to be teaching about the same thing. And I interpret the less clear passages, like Revelation 9, in light of the more clear passages. We've done that. We did that in Revelation 6 when we interpreted the seven seals in light of Jesus' discourse on the Mount of Olives in Luke 21. And we saw how they, they matched up side by side. And what Jesus said in clear language made what John saw in graphic depictions available to us. We did the same thing at the beginning of Revelation 9, where we interpreted the locusts in light of Luke chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which are more clear. We interpreted the less clear in light of more clear, and we need to do the same thing today. We've done it all the way through Revelation. I would challenge you, if you think I'm up here making up stuff and just making it say whatever I want it to say and not taking it literally, I would challenge you to look at any of the 15 or so sermons that we've had in Revelation and see if I've made any claim that I can't back up with a more clear passage from the New Testament. We're interpreting the Bible in light of the Bible, just like the Bible tells us to do. So the question is, do we have a more clear passage of Scripture that's not speaking in images of demon horses with fire-breathing serpent tails? Do we have a more clear passage of Scripture that might help us understand this text and verify the interpretation I just gave you? Yes, we do. And it's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. So I invite you to turn there with me. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the exact same judgment is described, only this time not in apocalyptic imagery, but in straightforward prose. In this passage, Paul is writing to reassure the Thessalonian believers that contrary to the false teaching that was infiltrating the church, the day of the Lord had not yet come. So beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, literally the apostasy, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? All right, so what, what has he said so far? He said that the great and final day of the Lord, the return of Christ, the resurrection None of these things will come until the rebellion or the apostasy comes first. This rebellion will coincide with the appearance of a man of lawlessness who is a counterfeit Christ. The final and climactic Antichrist, we'll meet him in a few weeks, he's known as the beast in Revelation, who will gather to himself the worship of the nations. All right, how does he do this? How does this usurper, this fraud, this counterfeit Jesus, how does he get the nations to worship him? He lies to them. He deceives them. Verse 6, you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You see it? The man of lawlessness, the beast, the Antichrist, he appears, he gets the nations to worship him, Jesus comes and kills him and all who follow him. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. All right? So the power of this man of lawlessness is in the lies that he speaks and the false signs that he performs, right? You see that? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So all of this according to Paul, the appearance of the man of lawlessness, the removal of the restraint, the giving over to believe the lies spoken by him is God's judgment because they did not believe the truth so as to be saved. Like when God commands that the four horsemen be released. I want you to notice four truths that have bearing on our interpretation of the sixth trumpet. Four truths from 2 Thessalonians. You can follow along again on the back of your bulletin. Number one, notice that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in Paul's day. Somewhere around 50, 55 AD. Mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but it is being restrained by the sovereign will of God until the right time. Just like the four angels were being restrained by the great river Euphrates until the hour, the day, the month, and the year established by God in Revelation 9, 14, and 15. 
listen, it's not that demons aren't operative in the world. No, he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. John said, you know that Antichrist is coming. Indeed, the spirit of Antichrist is already here. Many Antichrists have come. Demonic deception is in the world, but not like it will be then. It is restrained and limited by God until the day when he unleashes it to have full reign upon the earth. Just like the demons are released in a restrained and limited sense in the fifth trumpet and then are unleashed in their full fury in the sixth trumpet. Second, notice that the chief weapon wielded by the man of lawlessness is deception. Paul says he is put forth by Satan and is given power to perform false signs and wonders just like the beasts in Revelation 13. With the result that those who are perishing... Those whose names have not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Those who do not have the seal of God upon their forehead. Those who are perishing worship this counterfeit Christ and follow him. They take the mark of the beast. This fits perfectly with my hypothesis that what is in view in Revelation 9, when the fire and the smoke and the sulfur comes out of the mouths of the horses and kills a third of mankind... What is in view is demonic deception among the nations. Again, we see that what is revealed by signs and symbols and images in Revelation is made explicit in other portions of Scripture. Third, notice that the result of this deception is what Paul calls the rebellion, the apostasy, in which a vast majority of the world fully and finally rejects God and Christ and instead worships the beast and the dragon. The result of this rebellion, however, is that Christ returns in judgment, slays the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, and all who follow him perish in everlasting judgment. Just like what we read in Revelation 19, 21 and 2015, which are descriptive of the same event. So the deception of the demons leads to the death of the deceived. It's death by deception. That's how they die. They follow the beast into this final climactic rebellion, and then Jesus comes back and they're on the wrong side. Just as in Revelation 9.18, when a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of the mouths of the demon horses. As we've already seen, in this, the sixth trumpet in Revelation 9 is parallel with the sixth bowl of wrath in Revelation 16. Where John writes, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. What do they do? They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world and assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. They instigate a rebellion against God. How? Through deception. And we know how the so-called battle of Armageddon turns out, don't we? (laughs) Death and judgment and everlasting hell. Fourth, notice that this deception is God's judgment upon the wicked who refuse to believe the truth and so be saved. In other words, they actively suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 
And so God hardened them in their unbelief and gave them over to destruction. It was God who restrained the mystery of lawlessness. And it is God who then sends upon the wicked a strong delusion. So that they would believe what is false and be condemned for their unbelief and their unrighteousness. Which again, I think accords perfectly with the sixth trumpet in which the destruction wrought by these demonic riders and horses resulting in the death of a third of mankind is shown to be an act of God's sovereign judgment. He commanded that they be bound and He commanded that they be unleashed. It is God who restrains the four angels at the river Euphrates and it is God who releases them to send a strong delusion which kills. Now we have seen that these trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 and 9 mirror the plagues of Egypt, right? Do you remember the effect that the plagues of Egypt had upon the people of Egypt and upon Pharaoh? Did Pharaoh repent in sackcloth and ashes as a result of the plagues? No, he did not. Did he surrender to the sovereign power of God and declare that the Lord is God and he alone? No, he did not. Rather, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart such that he gathered his army together and pursued Israel to the banks of the Red Sea. And there the Lord slew Pharaoh and his entire army. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what's being described. And the same thing will happen at the end of the age. Because at the end of Revelation 9 we find this summary. Look at verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In other words, they just continued in their rebellion against God until the very day when God returned to slay them in his judgment, which occurs when we hear the seventh trumpet sound. In Revelation eleven fifteen. Now, how do you wrap something like this up? Well, I think I'm going to do it in the same way Paul did in 2 Thessalonians 2. Having just told the Thessalonian church that at the end of the age, God will send upon the, the wicked and unbelieving world a strong delusion such that they would be irreparably deceived and follow the man of lawlessness in his futile rebellion against God and Christ, Paul then turns around and he speaks a word of direct application to the church. And this is the word of God to us this morning. Listen to it. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And we have seen that his final assault upon the outside of the church and even within the church, he's taken his seat in the temple of God. 
multitudes among the world will fall prey to his deception. They will be drawn into his rebellion and they will perish so as by fire. And the question that we ought to ask is, how do you know, how do I know that we won't be among them? Well, in Revelation 9-4, John said that the demons were not allowed to touch those who had the seal of God on their foreheads, but you can't see it, can you? The seal is not a visible mark. You can't see it. Revelation 13.8, describing the same thing, says that the whole earth will worship the beast, the man of lawlessness, except those alone whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. All right, great. So let me see if my name's in the book. There's a problem. That book is closed and it will not be opened until the day of judgment, Revelation 20.12. So the sealed will not follow the beast. Those whose names are inscribed in the book will not follow the beast. And the problem is, I don't have a visible mark on my forehead and I can't peer into the book. So how do I know which side I'm really on? Because there will be many who named the name of Christ who will follow the man of lawlessness into the apostasy. Paul's answer to the Thessalonian church was through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's the evidence of my election. God chose you, Paul says, from the beginning for salvation. But he saves you through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and by provoking within you belief in the truth. That's the evidence that I am elect. That's the evidence that I am sealed. That's the evidence that my name has been written from the foundations of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. I am being sanctified by the Spirit and I believe the truth. He says to this, to this salvation by the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth, God has called you through the gospel unto the obtaining of the glory of Christ. And look at verse 15. Therefore, brothers, therefore, First Baptist Nixa, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. And there it is. And it makes perfect sense. If you would make your calling and election sure, then believe the truth and pursue sanctification by the Spirit, because that's what elect people do. If you would resist the demonic temptation and deception that is coming upon the world, the strong delusion that God is sending, and indeed is in the world even now, then stand firm and hold fast to the apostolic word because that's what sealed people do. In fact, the seal is what keeps you standing firm. So as long as you are standing firm, you may have confidence that you are sealed. You see it? The names are written in the book of life such that those whose names are written are sanctified by the Spirit and they believe the truth. 
So as long as I am being sanctified by the Spirit and am believing the truth, I may have confidence that my name is written in the book and that I will not worship the beast and follow him to destruction. John has told us in Revelation 9 precisely what the damned do. They believe lies and they do not repent. It's not hard. The response of this text is repent and believe. Turn from sin. Pursue the sanctification of the Spirit. Don't give yourself to idolatries and immoralities and all of those sins that are mentioned at the end of Revelation 9 that mark the unbelievers in the world, but rather stand firm on the truth of this book, the apostolic word. That is the call of Revelation 9. That is the call of 2 Thessalonians 2. That's the call of the whole of Scripture. So I say to you in the authority of this word, stand firm, First Baptist Nixa, and hold fast to the truth that you are taught in this book. Then when the end comes, when the Lord appears, you won't be slain by his judgment, but you will be among those who are gathered together with him and are saved. Stand firm and hold fast to this book.